Well, I am excited this morning. I've got my Father's Day uh, Vespa socks on that Leah got me, so those are awesome. And um, a new shirt from Marshalls that I got for myself. So, you know, happy Father's Day to me. Um, but we are grateful to be able to celebrate dads today and grateful to, to be continuing on in our series, Everyday Disciple. We've been in this conversation for the last several weeks about what it means to live a life that points people to Jesus. What it means not only to be Jesus' disciple, but to go and create disciples of Jesus. And today we want to embrace the fact that God is calling us to that place in the place that He has planted us. Last week, uh, Grant had an amazing challenge for all of us to engage the role of disciple and disciple maker. And his challenge, if you remember at the close of the service, was who's your Paul and who's your Timothy? Who's that person that you've allowed to invest in your life and speak into your life at a deep level? And who are you doing that for? Because all of us have been called to be discipled and all of us have been called to make disciples. And so we have to embrace the fact that God is calling us uh, not only to allow people to invest in our lives, but to invest in theirs as well. Today we continue in our, our series, Everyday Disciple. In the last few weeks, we've, we've talked about what it means to be Jesus' disciple, what it, what it means to point people to a relationship with Him. And this challenge to be everyday disciples begins and ends with the context to which God has placed you. If you remember, God has created each of us with a purpose. He's given us the perfect example of who Jesus is in sending His Son to the earth and what it looks like to follow Him. Jesus followed the will of the Father throughout His life and ministry on earth. And this challenge to be everyday disciples has to begin and end with the context to which God has placed you and planted you. Today we'll step into the reality that everyday disciples understand their home should be the headquarters for the mission to which God has called them. See, where you live is no accident. We oftentimes think, oh, you know, we relocated over here and we, we moved to this place and, you know, we were over here for a season and then we jumped over here. And we kind of look at our, our, our different stages of location and, and places just some random events. But truly, God has placed us in every one of those places intentionally. You know, in the book of Esther, in the, in the Old Testament, we, we hear Mordecai say to Esther, perhaps God has placed you here for such a time as this. And I can remember in college, I hated that verse because I was an RA, a resident assistant at our university. And so, for some strange miracle that that is probably still not been understood, um, I was entrusted like 20 college age guys to be responsible for, which looking back was probably not a real wise decision on the university's behalf. But thus there I was as a resident assistant. We have this we had this RD, the resident director, who is an authority over a bunch of us resident assistants, and she always used to say, "Oh, for such a time as this." For such a time as this, oh, for such a time as this. And I'd be like, oh, my gosh, if she says that again, I'm going to lose it. 
But truly, if we think about it, God has positioned us where he's placed us for such a time as this. If you'd open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5, that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time together. Matthew 5.13, we'll go there in just a second. But let me build some context. See, we see Jesus teaching his disciples and then calling them to action throughout Scripture. We, we, we see it throughout the, the New Testament where he's constantly teaching and then commissioning. You, know, you do this and do this and do this. Okay, now go and reach people. And we see this in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus begins one of his more famous teachings that's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount which contains the well-known Beatitudes. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up I, would, I was kind of in that place of saying I don't know what a Beatitude is. Maybe it's an attitude that we're supposed to be. There's, you know, Beatitude. It's not a, it's not a word we, we use all the time, you know. It's not something we challenge one another with. Just be attitude. Be zen. Huh? It's not something that we thrust into conversation. But this is where Jesus instructs his disciples in what it means to live a life of surrender and service for the kingdom of heaven. He begins to unpack what it looks like to live that way. If you look up the word beatitude in the dictionary, in Webster's dictionary, it, it's it's defined as a state of utmost bliss. State of utmost bliss. Sounds pretty great. But if we read the Beatitudes, they're not the most blissful statements that Jesus ever makes. See, Jesus makes nine different blessed are statements of what it looks like to become his disciple. So let's, let's read a few of them before we jump into our main text. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. It all sounds great. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Hang on. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Welcome to following Jesus. You're welcome. And then what does he say? Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you when you choose to follow Jesus. But these are hard. These are hard challenges. These are attitudes that we don't naturally gravitate towards. And then Jesus changes his challenge to make two of the most referenced you are statements we find in the Bible. So let's pick up our our text, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. The words are on the screen. Behind me, they're also available on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Neighborhood Church Events. and You'll find our scriptures and notes there. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. 
You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have given us the perfect example of what it means to be called your followers. That in Jesus we see exactly what it looks like to be those who love people well, to be those who serve people well, to be those that make an impact in the world that is, goes far beyond our, our time on this earth. Pray that you'd give us an eternal mindset that you would help us to embrace what it means to love people well and to point people to you. I pray that you'd give us the courage to step into that. Father, we pray that you'd speak to our hearts through your word this morning and that you'd challenge us to step out in faith, to follow you in everything that we do. God, we love you and we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. See, Jesus uses two very familiar metaphorical pictures in this passage of scripture salt and light salt and light things that we're familiar with today but but things that were very important in the day in which jesus was sharing this message see salt is a preservative It, it duly represents preserving and seasoning which were very important in that day and our lives should be ones that preserve hope in a hopeless world and bring a life-giving seasoning to every situation in which we're thrust. And light clearly represents the power of illumination. Darkness is, in essence, the absence of light. The reality remains, when light enters the space of darkness, darkness ceases to exist. It's this way across the board. Without fail. Today I want us to embrace what it means to be salt and light in the place where God has planted us. Because you're not there accidentally. You may think, God, why am I in this apartment? Why am I in this neighborhood? Why am I in this difficult place? Why am I in this transitionary season between where you had me and where I want to be? But God is desiring to do something in the season to which He's placed you. But first, we have to acknowledge that wherever we are, our neighborhood, our our apartment complex, our university dorm, our our, our retirement community, God has placed us there for His purpose. For His purpose. See, your greatest position of influence comes from the place God has planted you. You will have influence when you embrace that God has put you where you are. Can you remember where you grew up? I can remember. It was a little while ago. I have to think back a little bit, but I can remember the the neighborhood that I grew up in. Maybe you you think back to the city or the town that you that you lived in and the stores and the burger joints and the ice cream places that you always used to frequent. All the memories come back, smells. But we lived in the we lived in a little little part of South Salem called Cambridge Woods. 
Sounds pretty, pretty amazing, right? It was, it was okay. It wasn't that great. But we lived down there, and there, we, we had neighbors, and we had the, the, there was a, a forest down at the end of the street that we used to go in and explore, and it was amazing, and we'd have wiffle ball games and home run derbies, and we had a lot of fun. A little umpiring aside, I umpire baseball as a, a little bit of a side hobby and a passion, and I remember one time my, my umpiring mentor saying to me, you know, isn't it interesting that you can go anywhere in the country and find about 12 to 15 kids playing stickball or you know, playing wiffle ball or baseball in a vacant lot, calling their own balls and strikes, calling their own safes and outs, and everybody's getting along. It's not until you get parents involved that you need umpires. So weird how that works. But we used to love it. We, we, we loved our neighbors. We had the combs across the street and the Berrios down the street and the Gilmers and the Searles and the Noctigals and the Petricellis and the Rittenhouse and all the people that surrounded us. And, the, you know, the Rittenhouse, they were the, the governors. You know, they were the ones who ratted you out when you weren't supposed to be doing stuff. You know, my parents would come home and, do you know, little Danny was jumping off of the roof into the, the pool again. The memories of the places that we lived are lasting, right? Remember the smells and the experiences. The places God plants us impact us and impact those closest to us. So how does the reality of the way God uses location, more specifically the place we call home, translate to being everyday disciples? Well, if you truly consider this reality, the question becomes, how well do you know your neighbors? What are their first and last names? What are their kids' names? What do they do for a living? What are their hobbies? What are the things they love to do? What's their favorite food? See, we tend to say we know people, but do we really know people? Or is it just, hey, Tom, how's it going? Make sure you get the your side of the beauty strip mode it's because it's starting to look a little rough. <laughs> Perhaps you don't know your neighbors. And if you don't, you, you fit in with the majority of Americans. In a Pew Research study uh, that was done, only 31% of Americans say they know all or most of their neighbors. 31%. Of that average, it's taken from the fact that 40% of rural Americans and, and only 20%, 24% of urban Americans say they know all or most of their neighbors. That means in this room, statistically speaking, half of us don't know our neighbors. So how can we be everyday disciples to our neighborhood if we don't know our neighbors? How can we share and spread the love of Jesus if we don't know the people around us? The answer is simple. We can't. We have to push outside our propensity to come home and, and to draw the shades and, and to turn on the TV and binge watch our favorite series. Thank you, Netflix, for bringing everything that I have need of right here to my heart.
See, we have to push outside of our comfort zone. We have to push outside of our, our habits and our routines and be willing to see people that God is bringing across our path. Because here's the reality. You are the salt of the earth. We're called by God to be those who preserve, those who season, those who lift people around us. Because we're called to be salt. But to be salty Christians, we have to have some potency. You ever gotten, got a hold of salt that's not salty? It's kind of nasty. Right? You know, you don't want to put something on there that, you know, doesn't do anything to season anything. So how do we be salty Christians? Well, there's three key elements of salty living. Authenticity, compassion, and sacrifice. Authenticity, compassion, and sacrifice. This is what it means to be a salty Christian. Let's talk about authenticity. Christians should be the good news before they share the good news. You ever thought about that? People see the way they live long before they ever hear anything that you say. And what does the way you live say? Does it speak well? Is it kind? Is it loving? Is it encouraging? The fact is, if we're going to share the message of Jesus with our friends, our lives have to agree with our message. If you're saying, oh, Jesus is so great and he loves you, but I kind of think you're a knucklehead. (laughs) I'm getting kind of sick and tired of you parking your car out in front of my, my house. My part of the road. It's called authenticity. God knows we'll make mistakes. He knows we're imperfect, and He uses us despite our shortcomings. He somehow finds a way to redeem our stupidity to help people. But we're still called to live a consistent lifestyle. You can't say one thing and do the other, it just doesn't work. What about compassion? As everyday disciples, we should demonstrate compassion, not just because God's commanded us to be compassionate and to to love people, but because it opens people's hearts. You ever seen that? You do something selfless for somebody and it just opens up opportunity for relationship, just opens them up to the opportunity for you to speak into their life because they feel cared for. They feel loved. We're, we're, we're all wired the same way. When somebody does something that we don't expect, it's like, whoa, wow. Unfortunately, we have fast-paced lives. We're going here and we're doing that. I got a meeting and then I got to you know, pick, pick the kids up and drop them off at sports. And we, our sports schedules amass two weeks of, of time into one week of... And we don't have any space to just love people. And so our compassion quotient gets zapped. All the opportunities that we would have to love people are gone because we jam-pack our lives. In Matthew 25, 40, Jesus was speaking to his followers and he was challenging them to live and to serve and to love people. He says, The king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers 
and sisters of mine you did for me. He's saying feed them and clothe them and love them, care for them. We're saying, when, when did we do that? If you do that for the least of these, you did it for me. We have to be compassionate. We have to be willing to sacrifice. Sacrifice. Have you ever noticed that sacrificial gifts are rarely forgotten by people? When you sacrifice for somebody, when somebody sacrifices for you, we remember. We remember that gift of time. We remember that gift of, of resource. We remember that time that we were in a tough spot and somebody came alongside and said, hey, I got you. Gretchen and I are celebrating our 20th, 23rd wedding anniversary today on Father's Day, which is amazing. Just like Caleb, I only said that for the applause. But like 24 years ago, and Gretchen still tells this story, it's mind-boggling to me. I was at college and one of my buddies was getting ready to go snowboarding and and uh, he was going to take off for the weekend. I said, hey, let me hot wax your snowboard for you. Because I was an avid snowboarder and I loved, you know, waxing my own board so I didn't have to pay for it. He's like, seriously? I was like, yeah. He brought his board down and I, you know, got, got my, my snowboarding iron out. You don't use the one that you're going to, anyways, yeah. Got the wax out and started hot waxing it. So I'm, and I, so I'm scraping his board and Gretchen comes trotting down because we, we're in, on different floors, but in the same dorm. And she's like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm just waxing Brian's board. And she still tells this story 24 years later that she remembers this selfless act of doing something for a friend. And it's those things that people do for us or we do for people that stick with us. And sometimes they change the way we begin to see the world. We have to be willing to sacrifice, to stand out as disciples of Jesus in a very narcissistic, me-first culture. We have to be willing to be selfless, to live sacrificial lives. See, the sacrifices we may make may look like staying after school or work to spend time in conversation with a friend or a coworker who's in crisis, who's going through a difficult time. And maybe giving up a, a Saturday morning to volunteer at the church campus with a work day, hypothetically speaking, that may be coming up in a week or so. Maybe it's driving an elderly relative or a friend to the grocery store because they can't get out, because they can't drive. Those selfless acts stick with people. Romans 12 Starting in verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Did you hear that? We think worship is coming in here, raising our hands and singing songs. <laughs> Jesus said, your true and proper worship is loving people. Paul's challenge to us is to love people. It's to surrender our lives as a gift to people. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, we spend our lives saying, what is God's will? I'm just, I'm just waiting to hear God's will for my life. I just need that, that, you know, still small voice. And God's saying, I've, I've given you my will to do. It's the people I've put right in front of you. It's the people who live next door to you on the left and on the right. That's my good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's love those people. And love them well so that they see me. See, salt is a preservative. It's a flavor enhancer. and It can be added to something to give it a, a longer shelf life. But if you think of flavor as the quality of life, then we should be doing what we can to enhance the quality of life of the people around us. As well as preserving and lengthening the lives of those same people. See, the reality is salt has to be integrated into the food. Right? You, we've all been there. You sit down for a meal and you know the greatest gift and compliment you can give to a chef Take that first bite, and you're like, oh, yeah, this needs a little something extra. But it has to be integrated. It has to be, you know, when you take a piece of meat or steak, you, 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 you rub the salt, you rub the seasoning into the meat so that it's embedded in it. And that's really how our lives should be. See, a life inconsistent with our message of Jesus can hinder our witness. While a lifestyle marked by servanthood and love to other people can make our witness more credible. Can make people more attracted to what we're actually saying. It's authenticity, it's compassion, it's sacrifice. These are central to our lives having potency in the world and the way that we live our lives. And they have to be embedded. And then Jesus says, you are the light of the world. We're called to be disciples who shine light in darkness. It's simple. We live in a dark and dying world, and we've been called to be light. And we tend to overcomplicate the snot out of it for whatever reason. I mean, have you ever been walking in the dark? Maybe you've been camping or you're in the backyard and you're stumbling over stuff, you know, and, and then you find a light switch or you, you turn on the flashlight and it's like, oh, there we go. There's an illuminating element to light. And like salt, light is something that can have a dramatic effect on everything it touches. If you were to walk into this room and the lights were off, you'd probably start tripping over chairs or stumbling into stuff. But immediately when that light goes on, darkness goes. And we can see. Light makes it possible to see and to be seen. A lighthouse warns ships of the coastline. Emergency lights warn drivers of high-speed vehicles. Light brings security and reassurance. All right? Have you ever been in a dark house? You hear an unfamiliar sound? What do you do? There's a light switch. You flip the switch on. and yeah. Or if you're like me, you know, at night when you enter a room, you flip on a light switch, and then Gretchen comes in. She's like, ah, why are you turning all the lights on? And she flips the light off. And I flip it on again, and she flips it, you know. 
Gretchen's been flipping me off for 23 years. <laughs> Just saying. But Jesus says we're called to be like that in our neighborhoods. We're called to shine the light. We're, we're called to bring the light into the darkness of our neighborhoods. Because the truth is, not everybody on your street knows Jesus. The truth is, not every coworker that you work alongside of every day knows Him. And they're struggling through life without hope, without an understanding of their purpose. Luke 5, 27 After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, he he said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, all those wonderful churchy people who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with this? with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. See, we want to look around and, oh, why are you hanging out with those people? You shouldn't be hanging out. But Jesus says, it's not, the, it's not the well, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the ones who are hurting. It's the ones who are broken. It's the ones who are struggling. And the key reality to being light in the world is being willing to communicate the good news of Jesus to those with whom we're in close proximity. God has put people around you. And He's called us to love them. He's called us to share hope. He's called us to be peacemakers. See, if we do good deeds, fight injustice, and work for peace in the world, do all these amazing things, but we never mention the name of Jesus, what eternal good have we done? To be everyday disciples, we should spend our time rubbing shoulders with people who don't know Him. What friends, what family members, who do you know who doesn't know Jesus? Think for a minute about with whom you can most naturally affect and share your faith. Who comes to mind? You're probably thinking of a friend, a family member, a neighbor, a coworker, someone close to you. But I'm sure some names come to mind. Are we praying for those people? Are we actively looking for opportunities to speak into their lives, to invite them into relationship? Because we can most effectively share our faith with those whose trust and respect we've gained. And how do we gain people's trust and respect? Through friendship. Through opening our homes. To opening our lives. To taking that extra minute to care for somebody. See, trust and respect are at the heart of friendship. And friendship is the product of large amounts of time spent in close proximity. We don't just get to ask people about their lives when we don't really know them. It's offensive. So whether you want to share Christ with an old friend or are thinking about reaching out to your neighbor, sometimes these questions arise in our minds. 
Isn't it wrong to put time and effort into a relationship just to try and convert somebody? Just to try and get them saved? Or maybe you find yourself saying, where am I going to find time to invest in this relationship, to invest in this friendship? Well, in response to the first question, we should never have an ulterior motive when we initiate a friendship. That is, our our sole goal should never be contingent on a person's conversion to be in relationship with them. That wasn't what we saw with Jesus. He didn't walk into the tax collector's party and be like, all right, let me get every one of these people saved before I walk out of this place. Let it be known. No. He just wanted to do life with them. He just wanted to love them. He just wanted to be in relationship. But we should have an ultimate goal in our lives, right? To bring about good news in the lives of our friends and neighbors, the greatest good being Jesus' love in their heart. We should share that. We should be about that. And in response to the second question, we we often underestimate how much time we actually have to rub shoulders with people who don't know Jesus. We do. We underestimate it. Think for a minute about all the fun things you do with your Christian friends. Lunches, life groups, day trips, hikes grocery store runs, all kinds of fun stuff we do with our Christian community. And community is good. We can encourage one another. We can come together. We can be a blessing to one another. But how many times do we step out of the relationship of somebody who knows Jesus and their eternity is secure in that to be willing to engage somebody who doesn't know him? See, whenever you're thinking about introducing a friend to Jesus, to Christianity, to a life of following Jesus, try the barbecue first principle. This is my little barbecue apron. I don it once in a while because I don't like to have some stuff splatter on my, my cute shirt. Why was that funny? This is my little, my little grill and apron. But in the book Contagious, Contagious Christian, Becoming a Contagious Christian, there's an author named Mark Middleberg, and he, he shares this story of when he was trying to reach out to his neighbors. It says, Mark had invited friends to go to a special event at his church, but they had canceled at the last minute. So now he had two extra tickets and no one to bring. And as he pulled into his driveway that evening, he saw the young couple next door walking on the sidewalk. He barely knew them, but thought, why not? Hey, Scott, he called out. I was wondering if you two are busy tonight. I've got some extra tickets to a concert at our church. Would you like to go with us? Does this sound like a familiar situation for any of us? Scott glanced shyly at his girlfriend and then awkwardly looked at the ground and finally said, "Uh, thanks anyway, but I don't think we'll go this time. But, well, if you ever like to get together in the backyard for a barbecue, let us know. Scott, as they walked back, Mark thought, what was I thinking? Of course, you've got a barbecue first. It's so important that we make investments and friendships. Sometimes maybe we call them 
relational investments in order to gain the person's trust and respect as well as the right to earn the right to talk to them about spiritual issues. See, isn't it amazing when you invite somebody into relationship for, around a meal? And there's something magical that happens when you're standing at the grill flipping burgers and it's like, hey, you know, how are your kids doing? Oh, doing good, you know, yeah. Hey, how's work going? It's good, it's good, yeah, yeah. You know, how things going with so-and-so? People just tend to open up around food. We all do it because there's a, a ease that we feel when we're invited into that kind of relationship where there's no hidden agenda, there's no purpose outside of, I just want to share a meal. I just want to get to know you guys better. See, being foreign, inviting a friend to an event aimed primarily at Christian people, maybe we should be willing to invite them to a barbecue to get to know them. If we spend plenty of time rubbing shoulders in a casual environment where life stories and spiritual discussions can naturally occur, people are more apt to be willing to step into a different environment. It's one of the reasons why we have men's breakfast every other month off campus. So guys don't have to feel threatened and I don't really want to go to that church, but I'd kind of like to hang out with some guys. See, conversations that start out not so spiritual can quickly turn into spiritual moments of sharing your faith. We see it all the time. Where we're just enjoying a burger and somebody says, hey, you go to church, don't you? What church do you go to? Tell me about that. The key is to be open to what the Holy Spirit can do in the midst of a conversation. But there's fear. Fear holds us back from engaging relationship, from engaging friends, particularly in spiritual conversations because we don't always know what to say. We don't want to be asked the tough questions and come up with a blank stare on our face. Well, tell me about, you know, Jesus' life and what he did in yours. Uh, and we don't have all the answers to begin the conversation, but if we're asked a question that we don't have an answer for, the best way to respond is, I don't know. Let me get back to you on that. Honesty never hurts because people actually like it. It will actually build your witness more than making up something on the spot. So as you begin to engage in spiritual conversations, one question will probably be asked of you. You need to be ready to answer it. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? I see Christians and they seem to be hypocritical. They seem to say one thing and do another. So why is it so important to be a Christian? And without much forethought, explaining what it means to become a Christian can sometimes be a difficult task. Seems monumental, actually. And there's many ways to explain the gospel, the good news that we see in Scripture. But here's a simple outline for you. It's taken from this book, Contagious Christian. God, us, Jesus, you. God, us, Jesus, you. Seems pretty straightforward. God, he's loving, holy, and just. He's a good God. He loves his people. 
loves his creation. Us. We were made by God and we were very good. Unfortunately, we abused our freedom and we stepped into sinful behavior and we rebelled against God. And because God is holy, we cannot experience God's presence in our evil state, in our sinful state. Because He's just, He cannot simply do away with our evil or brush it aside. Because the wages of sin is death. But Jesus came along because God is loving. He sent His Son to suffer the penalty we deserve through death on the cross. Because Jesus was resurrected and was given new life, we have the possibility of the same. What an incredible promise. And then you. You can begin a relationship with God by acknowledging your sinfulness and asking God to forgive you and committing to follow Him. This new life includes eternity with God in the future, but also fulfillment and purpose in our time on this earth. God, us, Jesus, you. You know, while it's important to, to know a basic outline of the gospel, the Romans road, whatever you want to call it, the most effective way to present Jesus is through your story. I've shared the quote before, but a person with a story is never at the mercy of a person with an argument because your story is yours. The change that God is bringing about in your life is yours. And it will always impact and affect people if you're willing to share it. See, the best way to explain the difference Jesus can make in a person's life is to share the difference He's made in your life. I struggled with this. I was addicted to this. And God changed everything. And Jesus forgave me. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes... His, his disciples as salt and light. And that's what we've been called to be, salt and light. And he uses a very definitive description. He says, you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are. Not you will be if you try hard, or I'm really hoping you can become. Jesus says, you are. He said it to his disciples, and he's saying it to each and every one of you today. You are. You are my child. You are my disciple. You are the one I love and whom I am proud. You are those who will carry my message to the people I've placed in your path. And this is what it means to be his disciple. We're either salt or we're flavorless flavorless and good for nothing and the bible says only are to be thrown out and trampled on we're either light or we're allowing darkness to win in the world being a disciple means being called by jesus to call others to jesus so how will you do that in your neighborhood how will you do that in your context? Perhaps, you, perhaps you, you fall into that majority of people who don't know their neighbors. 
who haven't gotten to know those people around you. Maybe we can all take an action step this week. We can bake them cookies, we can knock on their door, introduce ourselves, compliment their flower garden, go mow the adjoining beauty strip that you're so annoyed and frustrated about. Or maybe you could just need to ask them to come over for a barbecue. Or heck, get ambitious, throw a block party, and just get them all in there at once. But we can reach out. We can reach those people that God has positioned around us. And we can see them impacted for Him, for His kingdom, for His glory. Because God's called each of us to the space and context in which He's placed us. But it's our job to begin to reach out in friendship and love to make an impact.